Good morning, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, a great way to do that is by becoming a patron at our Patreon page. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. And thank you for those who are already uh, subscribers there and supporters. We appreciate uh, your support uh, of our ministry uh, as we continue to uh, bring these things to people of God into the world. Well, I'm back in the saddle this weekend. Um, it's been kind of a long, <laughs> long week. Uh, we, I got sick, and it took out my voice. I mean, I was, I could talk, but it was difficult, and my voice was definitely not up to par. And I'm still struggling a little bit with uh, my voice, so I might be taking, definitely be taking some drinks of the old seltzer water here uh, soon. But I, I think I'm. I'm pretty much back to normal on the voice side. So back in the saddle, hope to be able to, um, you know, be able to communicate well today. Federal Theology, yo. Hey, good to see you, brother. Thanks for joining the show today. All right. So today's going to be really just a really more of a devotional. Um, I, I wasn't going to do any big theological topic uh, today, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um First, or I'm sorry, not First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter four, verse six. It says this: "For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." Now, when we're talking about salvation, you know, we don't typically. Hey, I think we as Christians, obviously, if you're a Christian, you have to confess this: that salvation is of the Lord. And it is not of our own doing. We're not meriting anything. We're not bringing ourselves into a right relationship with God of our own merits, of our own uh, good works in connection to God's law, as if we earned it. But I don't think this is a passage that we typically go to. We typically go to places like Romans chapter 3, Romans 4, etc. You know, Ephesians 2, which are all good places to go. But... 2 Corinthians 4, I think, brings out some pretty neat themes as it relates to salvation only being of God. Okay. And I, I think those passages tend to be very cliched, really, because those are kind of the go-to passages. We have those go-to passages, those quick thumb-tab passages that we go to to say, well, salvation is of God. Do-do-do-do-do, we go along with you. So... I kind of want to bring out a little bit from, uh, you know, a more obscure passage, I guess. Oh, thank you, brother. Thank you for the super chat. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for uh, the donation there. Um, I hope the show has been beneficial to you and uh, that this episode will be helpful as well. Thank you, brother. Um, so, you know, we have these other passages um, you know, that talk about salvation as only being of God. You know, our eternal destiny really does depend on that, right? We we talk about, again, I think we, we take this for granted quite a bit, but our eternal destiny depends upon God saving us and not us working our way up to God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, 
by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. So the gospel here is, that means that God is bringing people to salvation. He's not only, he not only saved them, but they're being saved. There's this sanctification process going on here where they will go and finally be saved in a different sense, not in the sense of justification, but in the sense of restoration and being brought to glorification. But the gospel is at the center of that too. It's not just being saved and we forget about the gospel. It's being saved and that gospel is what sanctifies us and is the foundation of the Christian life uh, that the, the Spirit of God uses to make his people more like himself. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So you can see here again, you can see here that there is a uh, an emphasis upon God's work. God is the one who is saving. God is the one who is sealing us. Not only are we saved through the gospel, the Holy Spirit is that guarantee that we are given that we will receive that promised inheritance. So you see God is at work here, and the gospel is the means by which that happens. And then famous passage, Romans 1, 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You can see the doctrine of justification is uh, revealed in the gospel, uh, doctrine of salvation by faith alone, that we are justified through faith because of what Jesus did on the cross and by his perfect life. That's, you know, in, in the gospel itself. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, the gospel is that means, um, you know, that, that brings us to God. So needless to say, our eternal destiny is of tremendous importance here. Uh, and the scriptures are continuously talking about that. And if it's the case that our eternal destiny is of utmost importance, then how we get there must also have the same importance, right? We can't expect to get to heaven unless we know the way right? If we don't know the way to get to heaven, and that's the really the ultimate thing that we should be concerned about, ultimately the most important thing we should be concerned about, uh, we can't expect to get there if we uh, don't know what the way is. And that means the way of getting there is just as important as the destination itself. So we have to uh, know what that way is, right? Or we're going to miss the mark entirely. And then, you know, this leads to those questions. Well, do what I does what I do contribute to my salvation? How does my faith play into this? And other questions that kind of help us to see what we're dealing with here. And all of those things are important. Um, so hopefully the discussion around our passage today should help, you know, kind of address those questions directly or indirectly. But looking at the, the passage itself, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if we look at the context here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if we bounce back a chapter, if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11, it says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on the stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit 
not be more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So Paul is talking about the distinction here between the Old and the New Covenant. And this further distinction is made in Hebrews chapter 8, where we see Christ is now mediating this new covenant. He's mediating a better covenant. He's not mediating the old covenant. He's not mediating the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant. He's mediating this new covenant distinct from the others. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews says uh, he's obtained a ministry that as that is as much more excellent than the old uh, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Christ is now mediating this new covenant, and there's that distinction uh, between them. And that's what we see here Paul laying out. He's laying out the distinction, um, you know, what was happening under Moses and then what was happening uh, under this new covenant. Right. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So there's that distinction here. While the old the old covenant was glorious in its own respect, but the new one is much more glorious because of what it uh, what it reveals. And you can see that language in Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapters eight, nine and ten. You can see this contrast between the old and the new covenants and people uh, in, in the membership of those covenants and, and what that uh, relationship is there. And of course, that is a hotly contested uh, discussion among uh, particular Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians, right, on the nature of the new covenant, covenant theology. Uh, but of course, as a Reformed Baptist who holds to 1689 federalism, I'm going to hold there as a substantial distinction between the new and the old covenants um, and uh, in that the the new covenant uh, did not exist as a covenant back in the uh, old testament uh, but that's kind of the context that we're seeing here as paul goes into his discussion in second corinthians chapter four so looking uh, a little earlier on from our passage, so Second Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the God light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So he's laying out the groundwork here that they're not being deceitful in their ministry. They were following Christ's example, as noted by Peter. If you look at 1 Peter 2, 21-22, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So they're following here the example of the Lord. They're not being deceitful. They're not hiding the message or being deceitful in the way that they're presenting um, the message, right? So they're they're basically saying that you know we're doing this in an honest way. We're not hiding it in an in a sinful way. We're presenting these things in a way that is uh, honoring uh, and glorifying to God. So you can see here that uh, there is this um, you know this understanding of 
um, you know, this veiling that's happening here that they're not participating in. Okay. And if their gospel is not seen clearly, it's not them doing it, but the God of this age. Yeah, we're presenting the gospel clearly. We're not being deceitful in our actions, but it's the God of this age that blinds them. Okay. Uh, and there is some controversy here over what this passage is referring to when it talks about the God of this age blinding them, um, the God of the prince of this age blinding them. Um, it seems in my own study of this, when you look at some of the classical interpretations of this, uh, like I looked at John Gill and Matthew Henry, John Gill being a particular Baptist, Henry, I think, being more of a traditional Puritan. Um, the God of this age is referred to as the devil and the prince of the world. Okay, so it's that at least that type of mindset. You don't see uh, there are those today who would say, and I think James White is one of them. Uh, that would say that uh, the God of this age is actually God and not uh, the God of this age being the devil. And I, I think it's probably best to see this as um, the God of this age, at least right now. And I think they might go to passages like Second Thessalonians 2.11, talks about God sending a strong delusion uh, to those. You might be able to draw something from there, but I'm not convinced that the God of this age is referring to anything but the devil. Okay. I, I, I think that's the classical view. And I think that's consistent at least right now. So I, you know, you, you can take that for what it's worth, but Paul is the, the important thing here is that Paul is saying that the gospel is not hidden because of anything that they're doing. We're not being deceitful in our practices uh, we've preached the gospel, we've laid these things out uh, in accordance with the new covenant that he's already laid out before. He's just continuing his line of thought here. So you can see that there is this, um, you know, this understanding of we are preaching the gospel fully. If it's veiled and hidden, it's not our fault. It's the God of the sage. So you can, and I think you can see kind of this opposition language as well, right? There's this language of opposition to what they are doing. It's not something that uh, would be consistent with the act of uh, biblical uh, practice, which would be to preach the gospel. So you can see, I think, how the interpretation of the God of the sage comes from this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that the God of the sage is uh, hindering them from preaching the gospel or... Uh, or anything like that. In fact, Paul is saying that to veil the gospel is a bad thing, right? Uh, and to be deceitful in that way is a bad thing. Um, so that doesn't seem consistent with uh, how, why would God try to thwart the work of his, uh, his own people when they're doing uh, what God has told them to do? That doesn't make any sense. So I, I think you can see uh, how that probably uh, just comes out as, well, this is God of sage, that's the devil it has to be. So now looking at our, our specific passage here this morning, um, we see a couple of things here. <clears throat> it says, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. So Paul begins the discussion talking about God's creative power. So we know scripture teaches that God created all things. It's Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we see Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. 
Amen. So everything that exists <clears throat> comes from God. There's nothing that existed prior to God. There's no matter that existed alongside God eternally that he had to pull from in order to make the world. All of those things are problematic because they make God dependent upon something else other than uh, himself. And then obviously not all things are from him at that point, because that means that something existed outside of God in order to, uh, you know, create these things. And, and at the end of the day, you'd have to say that um, something else came from outside of God. Even if God took eternal matter, that would mean that God uh, would really be dependent upon that matter. And those things really came from the matter, not from God. He just kind of formed them and then spit them out. But something else ultimately is the source and origin of these things. So we have to be really careful uh, when looking at these passages. So God created all things. Okay. God created all things. He created from nothing. He created from nothing. And of course, uh, this has to be logically consistent. <clears throat> Again, just because what I said, God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. He doesn't need any material to create something uh, if he is completely of himself in the first cause of all things. That means he's all-powerful, he's infinite, and uh, he can create things out of nothing. Okay, that's the logical conclusion. I'm not going to pretend to talk about the mechanics of that or say how that works. The scriptures don't reveal that, but it provides us the metaphysical groundwork upon which to consistently talk about these things and say, yeah, well, it has to be that. It can't be anything else, even if I don't know all the nitty-gritty details of, of why. We know that God sustains all things, right? So again, this is part of that principle. God commanded light to shine on darkness, and it's coming from, uh, it's all grounded in these principles. God created things from nothing, but it's also his creative and sustaining power. Acts 17, 28 teaches us that we move in God. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So if we're able to move outside of God, we would be able to actualize our own existence in anything, really, not just us. But the example that Paul uses here is people specifically. But we exist because we're in God. Our movement, our existence is in him, right? So it must be sustained by him. That's the only logical conclusion. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 teaches us not only that Christ created all things, but that Christ actually sustains everything by the word of his power. He upholds all things, right? And this would include our movements and being itself. He upholds it, and we are in his sovereign uh, power. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, that's, that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. All things hold together. So, before Paul goes into talking about our salvation, he lays the groundwork in saying, God created all things. God shone light out of darkness. God created light. It just, it was there. He created it and it happened, right? He declared light to shine out of darkness. It was instantaneous. He shone in our hearts. That's the next passage. Who has shone in our hearts? So in the same way that God commanded light to shine out of darkness in the creation of the world, this ex nihilo, out of nothing or of nothing, creative power that he has, 
he has shown his light in our hearts. So what we're seeing here is a parallel being made on Paul's part from the created work of God and created light in the beginning to bringing forth salvation in our hearts. So that light that brought sight into the world is that same power that brought sight to our spiritual eyes. We know that our hearts are dark. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked, you know, depending on what translation you're using. This is the ESV I'm using right here. Desperately sick, who can understand it? So the point is that the heart is just, it's utterly corrupt, right? It's dark. There, There is no light in our hearts. So we really do need that light, right? We need that light to shine into our hearts, or we're not going to be able to see spiritually, okay? This is the light that shone at the word of the power of Christ. This light that was sending away the shadows gives us a picture of what God does to the sinner. That light that broke into darkness in creation is the same power that brings us uh, to Christ, since our hearts are full of darkness and his light shines through. And we know from some of those thumb uh, thumbnail quick passages, right? Our hearts are bent away from God completely. It's what you see in Romans 3, 9, 9 through 18, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Uh, and if we look at Romans 8, 6 through 8, it says, to set, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind... On the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, And to be clear here, Paul is contrasting the life of a believer and the life of an infidel or an unbeliever. Um, I remember Leighton Flowers back in the day, he tried to get around the implications of this passage. Oh, thank Andrew. Thank you so much for... Uh, the super chat. I really appreciate uh, your support of the ministry. Um, thank you guys for your, your generous support today. Thank you. I I really hope our ministry is beneficial to you guys, and uh, it's a blessing to you. Thank you very much for the support. Um, but going back to Leighton Flowers, Leighton Flowers tried to <laughs> he tried to thank you, brother. Yeah, Leighton Flowers tried to get around the implications of this passage in uh, in trying to saying that, well, this isn't really talking about the believer-unbeliever distinction. This is talking, this could be referring to a believer that is simply setting his mind on the things of the flesh and therefore isn't pleasing God in that moment, uh, which is a ridiculous notion given the context of the passage, especially verse 1, which says that um, there's... Uh, Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, um, I believe is what it says. But the clear implication of the context, talking about the Spirit of God, whoever does not have the Spirit of God is not his. So if you you don't have the Spirit of God, you're obviously walking in a certain way. Those who have the Spirit live in a specific way. So you see this contrast between the two. And I think that uh, it's very clear that this passage is not referring to a Christian that is somehow just living in sin and therefore not pleasing God in that time, but this is a state of being. You are condemned or you are justified. Those are the two 
situations that they find themselves in. One has the spirit of God. One does not. One is Christ's. One is not. And I think that's the idea that we have to see here. Um, so if we take it from the latter position, we can see that those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. It's not just that they can't, you know, oh, they miss the mark once in a while. It says, um, uh, set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not just that it doesn't do it. It's, it's impossible for it to do it. And yes, it's, it's willful. They're bent away from God. But they cannot do so. They cannot do so. So this is the reality that the unbeliever, our natural state, we find ourselves in. But the contrast of that is, the contrast of that darkness and the wickedness of our hearts is that God has shown himself to us by blinding us with his light. The same light that blinded the world in, or, or the same power that blinded the world is the same power that blinds us with his light. There's no light that he did not leave out when he has shown in our hearts, obliterating that darkness. And we were blinded, yet God showed himself to us. So there's no room for boasting, because if God's light has shown, um, you know, shown completely in our hearts, then that means that there's nothing we did. There's nothing we contributed. God did it all. His light has shown in our hearts, pushing away the shadows in every way. And we are safe. It's done. God bursts forth his light proactively. And that's what I think the gloriousness of this passage is that we see God working on our behalf and God saving us and God moving on our behalf. It's nothing that we do to bring ourselves into right standing with God. God has to shine his light in our dark hearts in order to save us. All we could do is receive the gift by faith. Right, And that's all part of that process of God shining his light in our hearts. And the initiative was God's alone. If we look at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 30-31, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, because who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there's no room for boasting in our salvation. If we're in Christ, we have everything we need, right? Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places if we are in Christ Jesus. So we have his righteousness, we have sanctification, we have redemption. Everything we need is ours with the Holy Spirit being that guarantee and that seal for us. It's truly a glorious thing. I don't have to worry if I'm going to screw up tomorrow and I'm going to be kicked out of the kingdom because, well, you know, I, I missed the mark that day. I got to start all over again. We don't have to worry about that. We have the spirit as our guarantee and we have everything that we need in Christ Jesus to be saved and to make it to the finish line because God shone his light on our hearts and took away the darkness by that light. So there's no room for boasting whatsoever. We can only boast in the Lord and say that it is the Lord who did this. It is the Lord who did this. Um, I think a practical picture, you know, if you look at the thumbnail uh, to this episode, you can see it's Paul on the road to Damascus. I believe that's what it is. But the, he's being blinded, right? He's on the road to Damascus. He's being blinded by that light. This is from, you can see this in Acts 9, 3 through 6. Acts 9 through 6. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So he's on his way to uh, he's on his way to uh, Damascus, and he's blinded. All of a sudden, he's blinded. So I, I think this is a picture of God's initiative. In the same way that God's light shines in our darkness, God blinded Paul, blinded him with light, knocking him off his feet. Nothing that Paul did, right? Paul didn't you know, try to keep these four tabs to get God to initiate his light. God just showed up, and he was a changed man. God showed up and he was a changed man. Okay. Now I want to be clear that this doesn't negate human agency in the matter. Okay. But it regulates it to a means to an end and not the cause of the end. Okay. In some sense. Yes, faith is a means to get. It's from point A to point B. But it's not the cause of it as if it earns me anything, as if it merits anything. Okay. It's a tool that God uses to bring about his salvific ends, okay? Yeah, but we do really believe, it says that Abraham believed God. It doesn't say God believed God. Abraham did act on his will and his agency, but the faith was a gift of God. It wasn't something he conjured up, and the faith isn't imputed to him or credited to him as some kind of righteousness that he stands upon and says, well, look what I did. I'm, I'm right before God. Look, my faith it was counted. No. The faith itself is not counted as righteousness. The faith is merely a tool to get the righteousness of God, right? It's through faith that these uh, things happen. And that's the, the consistent message that we see in Romans <clears throat> that Paul brings out um, when he's talking about, when he's interpreting the passage about Abraham believing God and it was counted him as righteousness. Okay. It's through faith that these things happen. So God doesn't look at our faith and give salvation as a reward for what we did. Okay, it's grace alone that bring that goes through uh, that faith as a means and brings those things to us. Even the faith itself is granted to us. Philippians uh, talks about this. Okay, and then uh, the final part of the passage here in Second Corinthians four to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God isn't just shining his light in our hearts. There's a specific reason for it, right? It's not just this God is just being arbitrary and floating around in the sky and poof, I'm going to shine my light in the sky. No, there's a real purpose for it. It's part of his decree and his eternal plan. Verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 4 tell us that this is the gospel that is in mind here. The gospel is veiled by the God of this age, yet Paul says they preach this gospel, verse 5, and this means that this light that is shown is about salvation in helping us to see the gospel for what it is, right? It's God saving us. It's God revealing himself to us. We're no longer veiled and shrouded in a mist or fog where we can't see what this gospel is, but we are open to seeing it for what it is, <clears throat> and because of that, we embrace it, right? Because of what God has done, we embrace these things, and this is the principle um, we see, like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, 
but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. So as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So the things of God are spiritually discerned. They can only be known by spiritual, uh, by, you know, being open to us in a spiritual sense. Right. So we have to be uh, really careful about that. So if we're looking at the spirit of God's work, we can only understand spiritual things. We can only understand the gospel by the spirit of God revealing those things to us. So God, again, shining his light into our dark hearts so we can understand these things. We cannot naturally understand these things. They're foolishness to the world, and they want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with it. So all of this is God's light shining forth in our hearts. The same spirit that rested on Christ will also rest on his people. Uh, if we look at Isaiah um, 11, verses 1 through 4, when it's uh, predicting Jesus Christ coming and how the spirit is going to uh, rest upon him and guide him. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So the same spirit, you know, in the Old Testament you see this constant theme of the spirit resting upon God's chosen vessels, right? The spirit came and rested on Saul. The spirit came upon Samson, upon the judges, right, etc. So God... Spirit is a sign that he is guiding them and giving them strength to carry out his special will for the people of God. So you can imagine when Jews were reading this passage in Isaiah 11, and they're looking at this and going, wait, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him? Whoa, I better pay attention. This guy, I mean, I know what happened with Saul. I know what happened with uh, Samson. I know all of these things that these are men of God that, you know, God used to carry out his will with his people. So I better pay attention, right? So the, this same spirit is going to give him understanding. And, and this person, this Messiah, is going to judge with righteousness. He's not going to be imperfect like a Saul or a Solomon or a Samson, who all had failures in spite of the spirit of God being upon them. This one is going to judge and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall judge the poor. He's not going to use sight to judge. He's not going to judge based on mere appearances, but he's going to judge with the ultimate standard and do so perfectly. So this same type of knowledge that the Spirit is giving to the Lord, obviously Jesus was sinless, but this same principle here of guiding his people and in revealing the truths of God and guiding in all truth, the spirit of wisdom and understanding is the same spirit that we have right? We have the Spirit of God if we are His, Romans chapter 8, and that Spirit is going to guide us in all truth and help us to understand the things of God and reveal those things to us that we need to know. So when God shines His light forth in the darkness of our hearts, the Spirit of God is working and helping us to see the gospel for what it is and our need of Christ and our need to embrace those things. So 
it's all a work of God, and we can rest in that. And that should encourage us as Christians, as you know, like I said before, these things are cliched. We tend to <clears throat> take it for granted. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Oh yeah, I didn't do anything to contribute. Yeah, who cares? I think we tend to to take those things for granted, but we shouldn't. This is something that we can use if the gospel is uh, being used being used by God to save us now, as First Corinthians fifteen says, by which we are being saved. It should be something that we are continuously looking to and resting in and using to help in our walk with the Lord. So I hope that's been a helpful discussion, uh, just a brief um, kind of exegetical devotional today. But I hope that's been helpful and a blessing to your hearts and encouraging to you as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening, I hope that this the Lord uses this to help you to see his word and that his spirit would uh, work in your heart uh, to shine his light in your dark heart. Uh, but with that, everyone, take care. Next week, um, I plan to have Andrew Work on the show with me again. He's been uh, a pretty frequent guest on the show. Uh, he will be on and we'll be discussing uh, eternal subordination of the sun uh, in light of a listener, uh, a listener, kind of a listener request. So we'll discuss more of that uh, when we uh, when we get there next week. But uh, join us next week, and hopefully it'll be a blessed discussion. But with that, everyone, take care and have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. Bye-bye.